Welcome to Defense Unicorns, a podcast for mission-focused innovators. We educate, inform, and provide mission heroes with DevSecOps, cybersecurity, and organizational transformation stories from the world's leading problem solvers. I'm your host, Rob Slaughter, and we're excited for you to join us on this journey. Welcome to today's show. Today we have Dr. Alethea Duhan, the former Air Force and Space Force Modeling and Simulation CTO, a former flight test engineer at Edward Air Force Base in the Pentagon, and the current executive VP of product at Istari. Alethea, welcome. Nice to be here. Thanks for the invite, Rob. Yes, absolutely. One of the things I've appreciated about following your career over the last couple of years is just how effective you've been at championing different causes, specifically in the digital engineering and, of course, in the modeling and simulation you know, sort of niche areas, you know, can you explain to the audience really, like, what is the importance of digital engineering and modeling and simulation to, you know, the federal government and the, the Department of Defense? Okay. Well, I love talking about this because currently my role in Astari, we talk about empowering the physical world with the digital one. I've always believed in embracing the digital realm and embracing not only the digital realm, but also data as a primary weapons within the battlefield for success. The reason why I say this, it's, it's, this should not be something that is completely brand new. We've been doing a lot of modeling and simulation over the years. In fact, we've, I recently was at LOA, the Logistics Officers Association, and we kind of gave an example, you know, like try and change the paradigm. And it's not brand new information. McLaren Racing F1, they've been doing this for a while. So if they want to showcase in terms of time cost savings and design, the great example that they do is they, everything they do and they digitally manufacture and they digitally design everything in the digital realm and they go through this in an iterative process. They find out flaws, the issues and potential issues, anything within the design, iterate upon them all in the digital realm, pinpoint things. They go through over a thousand digital twins before a, a race before they even manufacture or even materializes as the actual car. So that means in the digital world, they are able to design and collaborate as a team, identify flaws. So the initial design on when we will use the paradigm of, you know, we design, then we build, then we test. What we're saying is in the modeling and sim simulation, what I'm championing is design, test, then build. Because what we can learn in the digital realm and updating with the information, iteration with the data received, whether it's authoritative source of truth or anything, or identifying some flaws upfront, we should be able to do that all in the digital realm and be able to have some cost savings. And, and honestly, there is no cost savings in terms of understanding all the information. That's invaluable information as we learn the design and we learn and pinpoint issues upfront. And then we go ahead and build it in the physical world. So what, what we are proposing or, you know, I've kind of been championing is kind of changing that paradigm mindset of how we tackle some of the things that we buy in a complex system, whether in, you know, when it was a federal government or right now, because there's so much potential within with technology, you know, GPT, the rise of AI, and so much catching up right now, we should be harnessing all of that. We have overwhelming amount of information and data out there that we just need to get smart of. And we need to kind of 
not weaponize, but use it to our advantage here to kind of stay ahead of our adversaries down the road. So I've always been a huge proponent of kind of changing that mindset because there's a lot of things that we don't have to immediately go and build. We can find things out within the digital realm and design and test there before it materializes. So there's a lot of cost savings in terms of that and time. And honestly, there's a lot of lessons learned and a lot of this information that will come out prior to that. So anyway. <laughs> and one of the things that really stood out to me about what what you're discussing is this ability to digitally design and, and digitally pass before you actually, you know, would take it to production. In your time as a flight test engineer on current DOD systems, how advanced are those systems in being able to digitally, you know, you know, test what they're trying to then adapt or field? I know there have been developments over time, right? When I first started off as a young flight test and engineer, a lot of the things, it's the old mindset, right, of design, build, and test. A lot of the things that we did be prior to testing, we will do it under hiddle and the sill. So that's the hardware in the loop and the software in the loop. We used to do a lot of those items, whether it's the iron board, anything, testing out the system before actually building. So way, without dating myself, like way back, we we were doing some items, but obviously the IMBER is a physical item. And some of it is just kind of siloed models. We're not, the interconnectivity of certain things weren't as sophisticated then. But again, a complex system has a lot of interoperability, integration things that sh shouldn't be an afterthought. But at that time, a lot of things were done in rural silos and there's no, nothing really connecting mo most of them. That was a while back. Over time, it's kind of developed. We've had the conversations on, you know, there's the joint simulation environment of what the GSE folks are doing for tests. And then on the training side, there was discussion on some of the synthetic training environments and certain items as we go. But I've always been on the mindset that, you know, you can't boil the ocean. You have to tackle them one at a, one at a time, kind of the art of the possible. So I've seen it evolve. I, I know there is this, there is current efforts into trying to create that and like, I wouldn't say ready player one oasis environment, but the environment to do it. I have not seen, I have not seen a digital test range. I've yet to see something that was all encompassing. I have not seen, I know that efforts going out there. I think we should be working towards for many reasons, because when we want to maybe radiate or what we do in whether it's military or anything, I think testing in an enclosed and controlled environment would be advantageous for us. Whether, you know, whether someone is watching us to see what we're doing or employing some TTPs, I think personally, I think we should be moving towards a digital test range. Currently, I'm aware of some efforts going on, but I've not seen a full scale one. On the commercial end, I've had some discussions with some folks, you know, on the drone side of how they've built their own kind of little environment to kind of test out the small little drones. So that's not, uh, it's not brand new information. Those are things I've seen currently, but I think if you're talking in the context of DOD and the federal government, I think we, we need to seriously have that dialogue on building that, whether it's a digital test environment, a digital training environment or whatever you apply it to, but we need to have that discussion and also to have the discussion on how we're going to interplay some of the models that are ingested in it. It's again, boil the ocean, but we need to tackle this in a very meticulous way. 
So, yeah. <laughs> and uh, in your time in the Air Force and the Peace Force, what progress have you been either a part of or you've seen across the community that you think is is really making steps in, in that direction to create that, you know, digital test frame? So I don't know. I can't speak to the digital test range. I do know that some of the GSE efforts are looking towards that. I've, you know, I've during my one of my last times in the Air Force, I made a trip down to Nellis Air Force Base in the Warfare Center, the Virtual Test and Training Center. They're doing some amazing works. They were going, there was GSE and some other efforts going on. So I do know they're working towards that. Whether it came to fruition or not, I'm not aware of that. I don't believe they're there yet. But I do know within the Air Force Space Force at that time, the one big thing was not on the tests, the training side, it was actually the maintenance. The maintenance and the logistics community did some amazing things to push the envelope. There is a product by Dynafic called Motar. Don't ask me what it stands for because it's changed during my time. But it's kind of a white label thing to kind of post a lot of the maintenance apps on it. Whether it integrates items or create the environment, I'm not too sure. But I do know at that time, the logistics and maintenance folks were working towards that. I've seen some of the efforts where they were rendering, whether it's an engine part or anything, just to train folks who, who don't otherwise get the benefit to being physically by the aircraft or anything, but actually train them in a separate, whether it's immersive or augmented reality overlay. Um, so I do know there was some efforts within the maintenance and the logistics community, which coincidentally is where I was about a week plus ago talking at the Logistics Officers Association. And no surprise there, I saw Motar again, and it's so much, so much development, not just on that specific platform, but just walking around and seeing what the community has done over time and embracing it. It's very reassuring to see how it's kind of exploded. On the Air Force and Space Force site, the other thing that I've also saw was the leadership. When I came on and did my dual-headed role for the CTO, we had just got buy-in from leadership in Air Force to stand up what we call the modeling and simulation office. At that time, there was I was dual-headed with the Air Force Agency for Modeling Simulation in Orlando, but that one was under... Um, it was a full under A3, A3's operations. It was very training focused. What we needed was a champion for more of an enterprise viewpoint to implement some of these efforts, whether it's, you know, logistics, even the chaplains or any other field. So the big shift I saw on my way out was the, the stand up of this office to have the enterprise viewpoint and to look at all the investments that we're doing on the Department of Air Force viewpoint. So that to me was very, one of the biggest assurance like, hey, we're taking this seriously within leadership and we're going to stand this office up. Only negative was that you kind of have to give them a budget. <laughs> you know, it's always like that, you know, that case if you have the budget, you know, the authority, that's great. But you need to help them and back them up to enable it. I, I do know over time, I've seen the office grow, so I'm super excited. There's been some realignment. The office is still there, and they're doing amazing work. They're having another summit next month, so I'm just super excited to what else they will announce.
But to me, those are like some of the immediate key highlights during my Air Force, Space Force time with modeling and sim, where we really, really put a focus and a spotlight on it. And I saw a lot of the communities just stepping in and trying to, you know, work on the art of the possible, basically, within their respective. What I'd like to see is all of us coming together and figuring out how we can create this environment, whether it's focus on tests or, you know, a test range or with training environment, but we need to have the dialogue because there's no way we can build one thing by ourselves. It takes a whole village and multiple functional areas to come together. I'd, I'd love to spend a little bit of time just talking about the art of the possible, especially mm-hmm. because what I, what I really admire about you is, is you, you have a lot of experience of being very, very hands-on. But then you also have, you have an academic background and you also have, you know, a digital background in terms of how do you actually digitally recreate some of these systems. And when you piece it all together, I think you have a, a really, really great viewpoint of, you know, not only practical examples of how this could be used within the department, but, but really, once again, that sort of art of the possible. So I'd love to hear in your own words, like, what is your vision for you know, the art of the possible for, you know, the federal government and Department of Defense. You know, when Tony Stark, and if you, if you watch Iron Man, he's in his lab, right? This is the dream. This is my vision. This is my dream. That he is in his lab, and just imagine this, and he's iteratively, if his overlay, if you see the digital, his overlay or anything, he is working and building things and going, nope. That's not good. Oh, there's a flaw there. We need to improve the material. Oh, let me test that. Let me simulate that. That's not going to work. That's the wrong environment. That's the wrong constraint. Stress, sort it out, put it back in. He's doing this all digitally. And then when he's finally happy with this design, he goes, print it. So my vision is we can do that right now with like some 3D printed or certain things. But what's holding us back in building similar to that, but building complex systems complex ships or certain things and then taking that and then putting it back in the digital environment to see how it will operate um, whether it's operational effectiveness or suitability within that environment i mean that is the end goal that would be great maybe it's a grandiose thing but i I would love for us to get there i mean i would love for us to build iron man suits who knows but you know but it's it's i think i think it's the right direction because we learn a lot and we have to trust the data, right? I, I talk, we talk about, about the digital stuff, but the one thing a lot of people within Astari and everyone that knows me, I'm about the data. Data doesn't lie, right? You can manipulate it, sure. But the data itself, that is your key. That is your strategic currency right now in the digital age. That is where I think we can really use it to our advantage. And my vision is for us to connect whether it's in the data level to understand whether where is the how we build things right everything like is data right you think of a, a block it's got dimension says data how we id ourselves that's data so everything will connect it and how we understand this environment we need to understand the data first too whether it's setting up some kind of common ontology within ourselves or anything i don't know what the right answer is but we need to figure out how to man, not manipulate, but how to harness all the overwhelming information coming, whether it's leveraging AI or automation of how we do that to enable us to create this digital environment. 
I think if we can crack that nut, which I think we have, it's just piecing it together. <laughs> I'd love to talk a little bit about what exactly is holding us back. You know, you, you talked about how, oh. how you started a, a center of excellence, you know, while you're still with the Air Force and Space Force. Space Force. I'd love to talk a little bit about how difficult it is to, uh, to actually start almost anything and then relate that to like, what are the big blockers to actually see that sort of Iron Man digital engineering environment? Like what's, what's holding us back from doing that? So I'll give you an example. Like you brought up the center of excellence. So that center of excellence, believe it or not, it was called statistical tests and analysis techniques, right? Stat. The scientific, scientific tests and analysis techniques, stat. We were trying to institute statistical methods within the DOD. It shouldn't be unheard of. You've, you've taken statistics, you've taken math. Shouldn't be unheard of. But lo and behold, it was a hard thing to institute. So when we created that center of excellence, what you don't see is the multiple phases that went into it. The creation of the policy, the buy-in, the, the resistance we had, the culture resistance was huge because a lot of folks, when we came in, again, my background's in aerospace engineering and my PhD, you know, my research was applied statistics, right? So I get appreciation of both. But when we tried to institute statistical methods within the testing and evaluation, we started off with testing and evaluation and within the master plans. Because sometimes when you build things, before you even build, you don't know, you know, like how many, how many, you know, stories do you need? How many, you know, what do you need? You need to be able to be objective and present information. All we were asking was you should be able to present how you design your tests statistically. So you know why you chose what points, you know, and what the level of effect, effectiveness were. So that was really kind of like a very layman's turn of pushing why we wanted it, right? Tell me objectively why you design your test like this before you even build it. So we understand why you designed the whole thing this way. To institute that policy, it, I mean, we, I encountered the most resistance was really culturally. It was a very cultural shift because everyone was very, very much into the mindset, like, this is how we do it. This is how we design the tests. And we, and we go through every pinpoint of these points and we go through methodically on this one. Granted, great. Now, let's say, lo and behold, I cut your budget by half. How are you going to address this? Like, oh, oh my gosh, I don't know. Like. This is where you have the statistical methods to kind of objectively say, this is why I chose this. This is the power and the level of confidence I have with this. So we got resistance. It's mostly the cultural aspect. There was also a subset of expertise because the organic talent wasn't there. So there was also that part. But instituting that change was mostly, you know, was really the culture. We ended up being able to update the AFI, um, subsequently also updated the DODI 5002. We pushed out a certificate program within Effort to kind of help people because we heard it loud and clear. People need training on this. This is, you know, so we said, okay, we will, we'll find money. We'll throw it in. We even added it in DAU training and added an Effort certificate. And then we also stood up a center of excellence and sponsored the first two, I think it was 20 MDAT or MACE programs at that time 
that was the budget that DT on the OSD side kind of threw money at to kind of sponsor like, hey, we know we're asking this in your, in your terms, but we want to help. So, you know, so I've had those conversations and a lot of the changes of things we have done in the past is really honestly a culture mindset change. Some people are just really focused on what they want and what they're used to, which is fine. Because I encountered that right now, like, you know, fast forward time. It's just like some engineers, like I'm asking folks like, hey, you know, what about this tool set or that tool set, right? Everyone's like, no, I love this tool set. I would die using this tool set. But why? This one can enable this one. Would you consider that? People are just so focused on what they're used to. And until we're open to being changing our mindset and being flexible to change, I think that's where the, some of the root causes are. A lot of the times where we pushed out change within the government, let's say in like some of my time with in Orlando, we had opened up one of the joint innovation hub, which is called the Central Florida Tech Grove. It's just making awareness and it's really the, I hate to say it, the coalition of willing people who want to to push the envelope and want to do good, right? The premise for pushing some of the joint innovation lab was basically because all of us were working together at different services and we saw all of us have similar requirements, but why buy multiple, like the same like vendor, but multiple times when we could probably come together in different services and what can we harness together and leverage each other's, like whether it's a government-owned model or the tool sets or whatever you bought from the vendor, like why can't we just have that discussion? And it honestly comes back to people willing to work together. So a lot of the times where we push change within all my government service was finding people who are willing to take a bet uh, and willing to see that there are other options and willing to be open to it. I'm not saying I have all the right answers, but I'm asking to maybe there is a chance there could be. And if not, we just learn from it and move on. So most of it, I would say, is more cultural based. There's always a learning aspect. And, you know, there's always the big glaring thing called funding. Um, you know, follow the money, like whoever wants to sponsor. Right? But yeah, most of the things that we champion within my government time has been just kind of pushing. But most of it on my end has been showing and helping people visualize it. You know, because sometimes people like tangible items and it's hard to visualize certain things. This is where the digital, in a, no pun intended, digital part it helps, right? Because you're trying to help them visualize something that they can't see right now, but would like them to explore, like we, when we used to say the art of the possible. Take the small wins and then build upon that. Don't tackle everything all at once. And then I'll present it that way and people will be like, ah, I see how this relates to me and what it can bring to me. And then we can slowly adopt and change the little mindset because you're a little bit open right now to, you know, working with me. So I'll pull that thread little by little, you know? So yeah, a lot of personalities and a lot of social things and cultural things that we had to encounter during my time. Let's say for somebody listening that they, they, they totally bought off on, you know, the, the art of the possible and they want their own Ironman digital engineering environment. What recommendations do you have for them to start small, 
to really like grow into that? So the one thing that has really, really helped me over time, people who actually, the right leadership who took bets on me and gave me free reign. So not only to those people who are asking, but I'm also challenging people who are in leadership roles. Empower those people, empower your people to be able to have that dialogue with you and be able to take bets on them because you need strong leadership, just like how I had that bet on me and my ideas and let me go with it. I would say I'll challenge those leaders listening to at least have that because your people are your critical assets here. And for those people, you know, who are just trying to like, hey, I have this great idea. I want to work on something, um, you know, depending on where you are, you know, you know, find means, ask around. Don't be afraid like to ask around to like, hey, and like, even if it's talking to someone to like pitch your idea or something or talk to it, they might have great ideas. Talk to your leadership on it. If hopefully you have great leadership that will listen to you. And also depending, I, I can't speak for the rest, but like if you have like a little spark cell, or wh whatever you innovation arm within it, go talk to them, talk within and it doesn't hurt like dude you can just reach out to me on linkedin i'll i'll find i'll find a, a, a way to help it you know push the idea or put you in touch because the one thing i learned during my career is the networking and just talking to people just like you like you know we talked and i remember we we talked and we found out about air force gaming and certain things it's just having that networking that truly helped because I learned something from you over time, you know, and at the time you worked in platform one, I learned something about the game, Airbus gaming folks are doing in terms of environment. And then you start making like, okay, maybe this can be applied there. Maybe I can also collaborate with you. So I felt like just having those dialogues and collaborating really, really helped out. But don't be afraid to do it. Don't be afraid. Just the first step is just recognizing that, you know, you have a great idea and reaching out to somebody. And if not, if they don't want to, don't want to hear it, just move on. Like, you know, just go to the next person. Talk to me. I'll listen and I'll help you out. One of the things that always concerns me about what call novel new technologies is from a technology perspective, if commercially you could have that sort of F1 type of environment, but for much more than complex systems. Culturally, do you see the federal government or the Department of Defense even adopting it? Do you think that the cultural challenges could be overcome? Or do you think culturally that, that it would be difficult or impossible to adopt? I don't want to speak for it, but I'm always the, the very optimistic person here. I've seen positive changes happening. I think that we can get there. I don't think we'll get there quick, but I also will caveat with saying that it matters who your leadership and champions are. That to me was really the deal breaker or things that help accelerate things. Because I had, if you, it comes from the top down. If you're getting from your leadership anything that is not pushing or not you know, being open to some of these, it's almost like a non-starter at that point because you can push so much, but if your leadership and anything is not going to give you the buy-in or the budget and authority to I'm gonna do this, then what do you have, right? So I think, I think we need to put in place leadership roles, not just by seniority, but 
based on people who can produce or have demonstrated results that they are willing to step out of the comfort zone and think of these are the possibles and put them in, in charge. And I, then I think we honestly have a real shot. I have seen a lot of forward movement on some of the, like when I was at Lower, it was so energizing just to see what the logistics folks are doing. They clearly have very strong and big champions over there and it shows. So I know it is possible, seen it. So if you, you know, if you're getting resistance to anything, it's, I want to say it's just a feeling. Some of these leadership, whether it take us a year, then nah, probably not. But I think we'll get there eventually. I think what's going to propel them, just like the rise of GPT and how it just exploded, all the companies jumping on it in the, in the last, you know, few weeks, few months, some things are going to propel them to think differently. But we shouldn't have to wait. You should have to be able to wait for that to happen. You should be acting it now. So it's yet to be seen, but I'm hopeful. I have to be hopeful. So I'd love to talk a little bit about Istari, the, the company you work for now. Some of my favorite people on the planet, you know, yourself, Dr. Roper, Chris Benson, you know, so many people who I have a ton of respect for are now working at this really, really small startup that that, you know, is doing amazing things, but I'd love to hear in your own words, like, what are you guys up to? What is, what is, what's your vision and, and how does it relate at all to some of the things you've talked about? So, you know, as you know, we came out of stealth mode, I forget what month, like, has it been two months already by design? And also by design, if you look at our website, it's starrydigital.com, by design, you won't find as much information. So we're being very meticulous putting out breadcrumbs of what we're building. What you see on the website is empowering the physical with the digital wall, building the engineering metaverse. Completely agree. That is what, what we have not discussed or anything push out is product launch of what we're building, which we are actually keeping pretty close hold for now. And it's funny because I oversee product and programs and I'll, it, it, it pains me. Like I want to share with you. I want to tell you how amazing it is, but right now we are keeping that a little close hole, a little secret, maybe a teaser, like, you know, wait till this year, sometime this year, you know, stay tuned. But what I discussed with some of the items initially with kind of shifting the paradigm of build, build, test, design, that paradigm in building some of these collaboration or interconnectedness of models, I would say that we are We've all experienced that in our government service, all of us, and therefore all of us have kind of stepped out and we're working towards that. So if you have, if you know Dr. Roba, if you've seen his matrix guides, we, I would say that will be a good teaser to what we're working towards. And what I discussed early on, I would say just stay tuned for now. We are definitely trying to push into I would say that little bit of the art of the possible right now. And we hope to have product launch sometime this year. So I know it's not all the information, but with by design, you know, we just got out of stealth mode. We, we were at South by Southwest and Dr. Roper kind of gave like the, the digital environment talk kind of brief on it. It was amazing. Loved it. Yeah. That's what we're sharing for now, but yeah, stay tuned. So. Awesome. Well, I'm definitely hooked 
and I'm sure we'll be keeping track on what you guys are, are up to. And one of the things that you talked about is, you know, it matters who your leadership is when mm-hmm. you're trying to do any of this transformation. Can you talk through, you know, you obviously many times as, as a junior person, like you, you can't change who, who you work for. And, and maybe some people can move jobs, but I know there's certain people that, you know, they might be on a, a commitment and they're kind of just stuck yeah. there. Can you just talk through some different strategies or things that you've seen to, to kind of get that leadership buy-in so that way you can really earn the right to, to create the change that you believe in? So the one thing I always, I'm, again, I go back to my data argument. You have to come with objective information. No one's going to say, this is a great idea just because, oh, it saves us time and money. How much time? How much money? What is, you know, what's, what's been done before? Why is this, you know, why is this niche? Why is this novel? How does it help us? So one thing I said is be smart on what it is and come armed with information and come armed with quantitative objective information to prove your point. Because ultimately what you're doing is this is your own time that you're trying to optimize some maybe process or certain things. So, uh, you know, do the homework, make sure you make the compelling argument of why objectively, what it means to your organization, what it means, because leadership will be more receptive that way. Because a lot of times when, you know, my old role, you know, it's more of a decision making, right? So I can't make a decision with just, this is a great idea. This is, this is wonderful. But I, I need to know like why this is a great idea. Like the cost, if it's a physical item, the cost of making it and why we should, you know, massively buy this, what would it save us, what the current the status quo is, what the potential is, but not only, you know, cradle to grave because one thing I also learned is great ideas are great, but a lot of things don't see it to execution, to fruition, to logistics, to maintenance. So I want to see the whole life cycle if it's a physical item. So make sure you do your homework and bring up that objective information. If it's like a software tool that you want to implement a certain things, like do your homework doesn't reside, should it reside on the networks or certain things? Like, you know, make a compelling argument moving forward because it's something you cannot, you know, disagree as a leader is you put in the work and you have objective information that I can action about and then come up with a recommendation. This is why we should move forward based on what it is. To me, that's been very helpful because that also prepares you for being educated on what it is or what you're doing and also kind of, you know, helps you. It's like a little pitch that you have, right? Have it ready. (laughs) If someone's not ready, go brief it someone else so you know you're a you're a very technical person that's held a a number of very senior across you know the the federal government and the department of defense there's been a a couple people on this podcast that have pointed to the lack of technical really skill sets and expertise within the senior leadership roles across the, the entire government can you speak to what impact or or lack thereof does technical expertise in senior leadership positions really having across the government? No, I, I, this is a good topic because it's kind of, you know, I'm very technical, but I also recognize there are certain positions that don't require you to be technical. But if you're dealing with some kind of enterprise viewpoints in terms of technology and certain aspects, then I would, 
I mean, it's just like when you hire an electrician, do you want to hire someone that actually has done it and actually worked on it? Or do you want to hire someone who, I think I've read about it in books. Let me, you know, let me go come in and help you with your wiring. I mean, it just, I know it's like we laugh about it, but you want to get someone who's walked the walk and it comes down to trust and credibility, right? So one thing I did was one of my old positions was oversight of a bunch of labs too. And you, one thing about, you know, dealing, it's not only that, but the credibility of people who have PhDs and working and managing them, you know, you also want to make sure that when you manage and give certain things that you understand what they have to go through and you understand the tasks and the asks. And that's something that if you're working in that domain, I would say you will want that kind of expertise in it. I agree with your previous podcast is that a lot of my time within government, we put folks in that don't have that background. You know, they probably, I mean, plus there, there's some folks like, hey, you know, they long time, again, don't hate me, like a pilot or something. Great. He's been doing that. Yeah, he's been great. Anything. Yeah, let's put him in there. But a lot of the systems we're building are complex, technical, and they have interoperability into play. Being hands-on, great. But you need to understand all of that. And if they have an engineering and applied background, even better. Awesome. But it's about the credibility and trust that you build with the people that are also reporting to you to make sure that you can give that objective information or at least decision. I just found most of my career that most of people within the, the senior roles do not have that kind of technical expertise, unfortunately. And I can also share a story because I wasn't planning on getting my PhD. I got it out of spite because in, in the Pentagon, when, when I told you my first story on statistical methods, I got, I got pushback that said, even though you have an aerospace engineering bachelor's and master's, you don't understand statistics. You're not part of that. And I was like, oh, is that so? And so I can tell you, even technically, like as an engineer, I got pushed back from the statisticians on that because I'm trying to push out some things. So I went back and said, you know what? I'll get my PhD and I'll focus specifically on statistical methods and testing evaluation for my dissertation. And, and guess what? I did. <laughs> I'm not saying do that, but, but we need folks that, but you see, I got pushed back on a technical side that you can tell other people didn't want. And, it, and they were vocal about it. And so I, but I didn't say no, thou shall. I, I chose the path to, I need to better myself and understand this too. And you know what? They were right because there is a kind of intricacies that I had to kind of change my mindset. So I think, you know, under, understanding the appreciation and technical background does actually help you and also actually not only helps you in a job, but helps you understand what people are going through and what they're working on and what it takes to scale. So I actually agree with that. And I wish there were more technical folks. But again, with a big caveat, I don't need a technical person, a human resource role. Like, you know, I, I'm not asking for that. I'm saying if it's a technical position and it requires analytical or risk or something like that, then yeah, I'm all about that. So then what would you propose, propose as the fix? Because, you know, I'd say that it's probably, you know, a low percentage of times that you have a, a senior leader managing technical resources, budget, manpower, you know, who d 
did, you know, may not have that background. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll caveat it with, you know, some of the best people I worked with in the, in those types of positions haven't necessarily had technical degrees. So it's not all bad, but, but it certainly doesn't hurt to have that experience. What do you, what do you propose or recommend is, is a potential fix there? So one thing that, so this comes back to the person. So one thing I also do is, you know, you don't have to have a degree to govern everything. You know, I've seen some like really crazy talented people self, like they, they self-taught software development. Like it's crazy. So the differentiator, honestly, is the people's, the person's passion and drive and the potential. I'm able, I can like immediately spot that. And those are the kind of people you want to take bets on because technically, you know, there are people who are just like, okay, I don't have a degree, but I'm really passionate. I'm willing to work this way. I'm willing to go back and study here. I'm willing to do that. Not, I'm not saying go back to get PhD, but go back to like, don't, don't be me. <laughs> you know, even if it's to go like at night, like sometimes I'm on like GPT trying to understand embeddings and certain things. Like, you know, when people have that drive or certain things, like you don't have the technical background or the credentials, who cares? But if you know your stuff, and you have that drive and passion to want to further it, I'll take bets on you all day and I'll, I'll, I'll love to invest in you. So I'd love to talk a little bit about your transition from your time in the government to, to now your, your time on this, you know, new, exciting, really startup landscape. You know, I'd love to hear a little bit of like really the, the motives and drives. You're clearly somebody who's very passionate about the mission. You know, what did you see in terms of opportunity on you know, that side of the house from a technology perspective to, to make you believe that that was, you know, the right, the right time and, and place for you. Yeah. And, and it's good that you mentioned it because I've always been, you know, motivated by mission, right? I've always been driven by that. So leaving government service was a little hard for me because I've been very mission focused, you know, delivering whether to the war fight or not. One thing I did step back and saying, leaving does not mean I'm not mission focused. I am still very much mission focused. The propelling thing to why and one of the big reasons also moving, you know, on is during my time in government and you can see the kind of a trend, you know, like, you know, you push a little envelope, you do a little more, you push it a little more. But I believe we can accelerate this. I think we have the right technologies. We have the right people. And sometimes you just have to step out of government to enable, like, like I, I was talking about, you know, trying to help other people visualize it. Sometimes you just have to step out when I was presented an option to be able to visualize and realize some of the items that we were working on within the Air Force and Space Force and be able to accelerate some of them on the outside without that bureaucracy, without that red tape, then yeah, I'll do it because I know that's what is the right thing to do for us to, you know, move forward as a nation. So one of the things move, you know, it's a hard, don't get me wrong. So it's not an easy decision because, you know, we love the stability of government <laughs> and, and to jump into a startup, right? A complete startup that's not even a year old. But I believe the one thing I believe, I believe in like, you, you, you know, Dr. Ropa and, you know, Will and Chris, they're, I believe in their vision. I believe in them. So not only did I bet that on the technology and certain things, I bet because I trust them and I know that we will get there as a team. So I'm just privileged that they, you know, allow me to join into a journey, 
But that's kind of one of the big reasons why I kind of move forward because I know that we can do this and what we were working on in government, we can tackle it. We can tackle it a little faster on the outside right now. Well, speaking of that, that's the, you know, a, a lot of current international events, you know, both with mm -hmm. things going on with Russia and, and, and things going on with China. Can you talk a little bit about the urgency of need around you know, how some of the technology that you talked about and some of the cultural changes you've talked about. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, really the, the difference between, you know, innovation for the sake of innovation versus some of these new emerging threats that we're now faced with? So here's my, I, I I've talked about this in Lua. I, we, the one theme that I pushed was, you know, carrying on on what Dr. Ropa said was digital is the battlefield. We are in a different age right now. Your battlefield is in digital right now. You can, in one of my old roles was at DHS sister, right? So I got previewed, you know, we talk about a lot of the physical items and certain things. There are cyber aspects that happens. I can tell you that the few, like we need to accelerate things and it needed to happen yesterday. So a lot of the things that, you know, that, you know, not to be discussed here, but a lot of things moving forward in my previous roles and certain things leads me to believe that digital is a battlefield, whether it's moving things and assets over there and understanding and accelerating our efforts there, but also making sure that we're secure on that aspect too. Because the interconnectedness of our country and as people, you have your phones, right? You wake up, you have your phone. I'm sure you have your, my, you know, my, my car, I have my Apple you know, CarPlay, everything's connected. I have Siri, Alexa, like everything, my ring and everything. Just your day-to-day, -day, not talking military, anything. In this day and age, in so much interconnectedness, there are multiple ways and nefarious people that are willing to adopt a different battlefield. So what we think in our past is, you know, whether it's air and air or anything, I would, I would venture to say, no, digital is a battlefield. There are ways you can manipulate certain things. We saw it in solar winds, whether it's a water contamination. Just to give examples, there are ways, there are different ways of warfare, non-asymmetric warfare ways. So we need to be cognizant of that. And so, and not just downplay certain items, but we need to recognize that that is why the push for digital, because it's much more than just is not much more than just fit military. It can wipe out a grid or whether it's, whether it's the energy, your blackout, your critical things that you, American way of life, whether it's your food supply, whether it's the water supply or anything. So if you think of it that way, there is very, very unique ways you can bring down things. So that's why I, I, I advocate like we need to, you know, we need to kind of change our mindset of how we adopt and how we handle things moving forward because it's not going to be the traditional route. It's not going to be that. And you discussed a little bit, you know, embeddings and chat GPT. Can you talk a little bit about how generative AI and the role it may play within this new digital battlefield? Yeah. Okay. So it's interesting because we're working on some it items right now without talking about product, but there's ways to automate things, right? To get things, accelerate things that were, whether it's automation or anything in the digital realm. I know that's kind of vague, 
But let's think of it as in your personal day life, right? You could technically use generative AI as the thing as your virtual personal assistant. You could, you could, I bet that people who are using it to draft out proposals and certain things, right? You can also right now accelerate your efforts in terms of writing code or visualizing certain things. So there's, there's so much there that we can leverage to automate and honestly accelerate certain things. Some, I've seen folks, you know, use it to write reports or certain things. And it, it propels things. I've seen some folks use it to write certain code and then copy and paste it back or, or make or just feed it back in and have it spit back what the error was. So there are ways of how we can manipulate and use it to our advantage to accelerate certain things or how we develop things. But again, you know, it, but also there's also that big caveat of, you know, don't put on proprietary things in there. Make sure that you don't want to share what you don't want to share upstream. But there are ways, I mean, that we could, we could use it to our advantage right now. And personally, I've used it like on a, on like personal things to like find, you know, like if sometimes the information on Google or something, you know, you can just ask it to, hey, you know, if I was so-and-so, what would I do with this? And then it would tell me like exactly play out the scenario. So there are ways, you know, ways to use it on a personal and also professionally. But yeah, some of the items that, you know, I would say professionally that I've leveraged is the automation of some of the code and code generation. You know, I, I've noticed myself just, just feeling like we're in this very, very unique point in time to where, you know, it's just like there's so much innovation going on from a technology perspective that there's just a certain level of excitement that, that I've just personally have, have just never felt since that, since I've been alive, that there's something unique about this moment in time, just because of the, mm -hmm. the sheer amount of things going on. So I was curious from your perspective, out of all the types of technologies that are advancing across society, you know, whether it's these digital worlds or artificial intelligence, you know, when the history books are written, what do you think will be the most impactful? to not only the world, but specifically to, to the government and the Department of Defense? I'm not trying to say it's a hype because of now or anything, but the way generative AI and GPT has exploded, I've not seen this in scale for a long, long time. I mean, we've seen a lot of the VR, AR stuff, but this is, I personally, it pales in, in comparison to be able to train this information, I mean, granted, there's some context that it can't take, but to see it be able to, to train that into, in this magnitude and the way I, I have the plus account, so I have like GPT-4, I, I use it as a playground every day. It's just mind blowing what it can do and the potential. I'm still discovering it day to day, but to me, I feel like this complete explosion, not because of the current hype, is really groundbreaking moving forward. I think we're going to see explosions of multiple companies kind of leveraging it. But I think we need to make sure that it's leveraging it for the good. And that's the tough part, right? Because there's always people in the background. But to me, that is one of the, it's been a long time since I've seen something get me so excited. And honestly, that's it whether it's the good or bad. And I'm still like exploring every day. I, I love playing around a bit. So, yeah. 
How about you? Uh, oh, what do I you completely think? agree. You know, like I said, I, I feel like it's a oh. different way. It's a digital Sputnik type moment. And, oh. you know, it's, it's impact, it impacted me personally, you know, both myself, also the pension accordance and, and everybody I talked to, including yourself. So I, I definitely agree with everything you said. Yeah. The, the last question I have for you is, is really one we, we live, you know, we, we ask really all our guests as, as kind of their closing question. Why should people continue to listen to this podcast? Are you kidding me? It's Rob Slaughter. Okay. I, I don't know what other people have said, but seriously, I, I love you. And like I, when we worked together, I had such a great time and I've learned so much from you over the years. If you, if you want, Honestly, I just, I, I think what you're doing and what you set up, I saw you from active duty transition over. You have done so much impactful things. So I, I honestly, it's just like, it's, it's you. Like I would say what, because of what you have to offer too. That's why I would love to hear one day if someone, I, you know what, I'll interview you. I want to hear your story. I want to hear your feedback because I honestly think you are someone that I look up to. So they should, if they want to, you know, listen in, it's because of you. Well, that's super, super, like, you know, completely speechless. All the guests we have on the show are simply amazing. And I'm just like, so thrilled and honored to just, you know, have, have not only yourself, but everybody we've had to date and in the future. And with that, you know, for the, those listening, please subscribe if you haven't yet. We will continue to have amazing, amazing guests like Alethea and Alethea, thank you so much for your time. I'm looking forward to your product announcements. I, everything you said is super exciting and I can't wait for you to be able to talk about it more. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm just humble knowing all the guests you had before. They're just amazing. I don't fit in that category, but just happy, just happy to be here and on it that you asked. So thank awesome. you. Well, thank you so much and I hope everybody has a good day. This is your host, Rob Slaughter. Thanks for listening to Defense Unicorns, a podcast. We have amazing guests coming the next couple of episodes. So subscribe now so you get notified when we release new content.